Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I lay on you this command. Aslan said to lose to uh, Jill, although with a better voice, that you seek this lost prince until either you have found him and brought him to his father's house, or else died in the attempt, or else gone back into your own world. How, please, said Jill. I will tell you, child, said the lion. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good help. Second, you must journey out of Narnia to the north till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, you shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what the writing tells you. Fourth, You will know the lost prince, if you find him, by this, that he will be the first person you have met in your travels who will ask you to do something in my name, in the name of Aslan. As the lion seemed to have finished, Jill thought she should say something, so she said, Thank you very much. I see. Child, said Aslan in a gentler voice than he had yet used, Perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat to me in order the four signs. Jill tried and didn't quite get them, get, didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again till she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this so that when it was done, Jill plucked up courage to ask questions. And a little bit later, long before she had got anywhere near the edge, Aslan's voice behind her said, Stand still. In a moment I will blow. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say to them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. Hello and welcome to Ask Andrew. Now, in the last session, I addressed a question sent to me from Ashley who commented on how Charlotte Mason, she had heard, would not approve of over-catechizing children. And so she asked for my thoughts on catechizing children, religiously and more broadly, involving traditional written catechisms and beyond these. The question became, what is involved in catechizing? 
And can children be overcatechized? So I commented that certainly children can be overcatechized. They can be over anything. And so it's always a question of, of getting it right. We should be extremists for moderation, to be slightly ironic. Um, but to get that Goldilocks point of the right degree of catechizing. Uh, then I talked about how, I talked about the history of catechizing among Christians and how there's different approaches to catechizing based on um, the different, let's call them branches of the church that you're a member of. Some emphasize Bible study a lot and, and Bible memory work. Some emphasize prayer a lot. Some emphasize creeds and some emphasize all of them. Uh, and there's other things that that, that um, different groups emphasize. And it's, in, it's, it's intriguing and important to me that what we think is most important, we will try to remember. And I think maybe that's the whole key to catechesis. Um, we are members of communities. And sometimes I think that individuals don't have their own thoughts and their own memories, but communities have thoughts and memories that are thought and remembered through individuals. Now that's an extreme statement, so don't, don't take that too far. But we're members of communities and our identity in that community is related to what we remember, to what we believe. And what we believe is, is related to what we remember. So to be a full and faithful member of a community, one might say, you need to know the teachings and beliefs and assumptions and, and practices and rituals of that community. Specifically, we talked about the value of doctrine and doctrine as guides to experience. Um, I think I, I, I want to leap forward and go right to today's talk and end the such as it is review, partly because you've heard enough of it and partly because, let me put it this way, I, I'm trying really hard to keep these to the length of time they're supposed to be, which is maximum 20 minutes, and I'm finding I'm I'm going too far. So what I'm going to do in this talk is I, I have some some notes and and if I get to the middle of it and run out of time, if I hit 20 minutes, I'm just going to stop um, and apologize to you and then pick it up in the next session. I hope that's okay with you. Um, but therefore, I want to go right on to, to this session by making this point. Catechizing nowadays is understood as memorizing. And memorizing tends to have, well, there are three questions that arise about memorizing that I'm going to address. The questions are, what should we memorize? How much should we memorize? And how should we memorize? And what I want you to remember before we talk about memorizing is that words are seeds and that memory demands attention and that attention is the foundation of all learning and what you pay attention to largely determines what you become. So you might say memory is important and we can't just discover wisdom on our own. So we need to receive the gifts of our community. So what, how, and how much? Okay, what should we memorize? Simple answer, whatever is important. How much should we memorize? Simple answer, a little more than yesterday and a lot more than our culture respects. And third, how should we remember? Simple answer, by giving attention to things. Sustained attention until it stays. But let's look at each of those a little bit more. Let's look at this question of, of what should we memorize? 
And I said important things. All right. I, I've suggested three categories for important things. Um, category one, foundational facts. Category two, well-expressed ideas. And category three, well-developed models. Such as a good poem that maybe a, maybe a particular poem doesn't have a great depth of meaning, let's suppose, but it has a beautiful form. That would be worth, worth memorizing because of the form. Therefore, from the perspective of religious tradition, for example, then the, the um, things we would memorize are creeds, prayers, Bible verses, even Bible books. Well, certainly Bible book titles, but books of the Bible. I've, I've had friends who've memorized whole books, like, say, Jude or Philemon, um, but also longer ones like Ephesians. And by the way, if I were headmaster of a Christian school, one of my most fervent desires would be that every student in the school have the book of Ephesians memorized and maybe even the book of Hebrews by the time they graduate. Now, they'd have 12 years to do it. Okay, enough on that. What about history? In history, there are facts, names of kings, epics, eras, things like that. Those, those can be and should be memorized. There are stories. There are uh, stories about kings, stories about heroes. Those should be memorized. Now, here I'm expanding on the way I'm using the word memory, memorize, and I'll just say stories, I think, should be done through primarily through narration unless the specific word, this is an important point, if there's specific words or forms that are extremely important in the memory work, then memorize word for word. But if it's just a story, then narration is, I think, the best way to, to, to remember. Also in history, there's principles, um, trends. Like I, I like to point out that the one lesson history teaches is that transitions are difficult. Succession is difficult. So have, have your students memorize that statement. Succession is difficult, which we'll get to how later. Also texts, historical texts, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln's uh, speech at Gettysburg, the Magna Carta, Henry V's so-called speech at, 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 at Agincourt. Of course, Shakespeare's is not Henry's. But in any case, historical texts are very worth memorizing. Um, in literature, what do you memorize in literature? Well, basic facts would be things like authors, the titles of their books, characters in books. But more importantly, would be texts themselves, such as poems or or um, a paragraph here, a paragraph there, a sentence. My my favorite sentence from the 20th century is is one in Evelyn Waugh that I've memorized word for word, but won't repeat here because of time. Um, so there's literature, facts, and there's also um, characters, titles, texts, and so on. Math facts. That's memory work. Absolutely. Uh, principles of math, definitions, axioms. And when I, when I think of all these things that kids have to remember anyway in a, in a class like math, or let's say in writing where you have to memorize certain, or you have to know what certain things are, um, and then you're given a definition. Well, why not, why not help the students remember things that they have to remember? Because once these things are stored away in the mind, they come alive and can be used. But until then, if, if, if a definition or a tool or what, what a thing is, is not memorized and, and the student has to constantly come back and think about what it is, like a math fact, for example, if he's trying to do algebra but has to, do his, but has to still calculate basic um, addition and subtraction or multiplication and division, 
still hasn't got that. If he has to go and think about it again, because it's not nailed down, if you want to call it that, then things tend to squirm away when you need them. But if you have them securely fastened, ironically, ideas come to life in the mind and you can do things with them. And that's true in every subject, but I think it's very obvious in a, in a subject like math. Um, also in science, there are science facts, definitions, taxonomies, names, formulae, principles. These things should be memorized. Now, an example of a taxonomy would, and, and this brings me back to when I used to teach third grade, and I, I just want to tell you a fun story about third grade. There was a, uh, I, I taught my kids the, the typical taxonomy of kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So we did this chant. And there was one boy in my third grade class. He was a big guy, really fun kid and high energy and really a lot bigger than everybody else. And he liked to really get into this chant. And so he, he would go like this. We would all together be going kingdom, phylum, class, order, family. And at this point he would go genus, species. And he would do like a wrestler or something and pound on the desk. And I'm all for that because I can, I can guarantee you that class remembered genus species. And I'll come back to why that is in just a moment. But things like that, they don't have to be boring. They can be a lot of fun to do, especially in a class session. And again, I come back to the question, since they have to learn this stuff, why not help them? Why not coach them? Why not give them time together to do it? After all, everything they're going to do in science is going to relate to, to, to that one way or another. Um, well, that brings up, you've probably started to think, oh my goodness, that is so much to remember. Well, yeah, but just keep in mind, you've got 12, 13 years plus preschool and then a little bit of college. It doesn't have to be all learned at once. In fact, obviously, it can't be all learned at once. We can only learn a little bit at a time. But when we learn a little bit at a time, patiently and over time, it is astounding how much we can learn. And so the question, how much, I, I cheekily answered before, a little more than yesterday and a lot more than our culture respects. Um, don't be intimidated about this. If people around you don't think there's value in memorizing, just go on and don't bother them with it. But to have things in your mind is to have things working in your soul. So, so, so the thing you want to do is, is consider how much at a time, how much in a day, and how much in a year, things like that. But mostly at a time and in, in a day. And I, I firmly and strongly believe in memory work done in small chunks. Uh, three minutes at the beginning of a session is a great amount of time every single day for 12 years to do math drills. Three minutes at the beginning is a great amount of time to do a short recitation of a text, a portion of a text. Um, sometimes, sometimes when, when they have a lot, you can, go, you can go longer because they feel all this um, pride, I suppose, sense of accomplishment that they can go very long. But when you're learning, especially, and this is based on age, but about three minutes is a good amount of time adapted to age and attention span. Um, I'd say in high school, they probably can easily do five to seven minutes every single day at the beginning of every single session. And, and you can feel like, well, we're not getting into stuff here, but you are, you absolutely are far deeper by memorizing. So keep it adapted to the age and the attention span, do it in short chunks, but, but 
you know, extend the chunks and do a lot of chunks. I, I think, man, seven, eight, nine, ten chunks a day isn't going to hurt any. And when it comes to a class like Latin or, or, you know, a language class where it's all about remembering a ton of stuff, discrete bits of information, if I had my way, a Latin class would be divided into four 10-minute chunks or 15-minute chunks instead of one 50- or 60-minute chunk because you want to you put something in the mind, you want to let it settle in a bit, then later on in the day you want to come back to it. Then you want to put it aside. And then later on in the day, you want to come back to it from a different angle. And things that you're trying to memorize for the long term need to be stretched out like that, which I'll come back to in a moment. So, so at a time, short chunks. In a day, I like a bunch of short spurts. At school, every single class should probably begin with a short spurt. Uh, at home, I would suggest beginning every single session, every single art or every single study with, with a short spurt. Again, three, five minutes, if the kids are really enthusiastic and do more, adjust, adjust accordingly. But I want to just mention a couple notes here. One is a powerful memory is one of the most powerful differentiators among thinking people. In other words, if you have 10 people who think a lot in a, in a room together, the one who's going to be the most effective is almost always the one with the most powerful memory. So think of a college classroom, think of a job interview, a job fair. Think when you, when you know more about what you're talking about and you can just simply draw on it without looking it up, you're going to be better at that, at better at thinking. And I would add to that, one of the reasons for that is that people who think, think because their minds have things to think about in them. And the way you get things to think about in your mind is by remembering things. The second thing I want to point out is that memory can be improved. Now, there's discussion about whether it's muscle and organ and all that. We'll come back to that too. But that's not even significant to the point in my view. Memory can be improved if only by multiplying the associations. If a fact walks into your mind, it is much like, a, it's much like you if you go to a a party or a cocktail party or a, a gathering where you don't know anybody. What does everybody do? I asked this question for years now. What does everybody do at a gathering where they don't know anybody? Well, first they look around to see if there's anybody they know, even if they just met them once three years ago. And if they did, they'll walk over and say hi. And if not, then the inclination is to leave. That's how it is for facts that come into our mind. They look around immediately for a friend. And if they can't find one, they want to leave. Now, you can trap them. There are ways to do that. But it's much easier to get a fact to stay in your mind willfully and joyfully if it sees a friend there. And so the more, in a way, you could say the more you remember, the more you can remember. You multiply your capacity to remember things because you're adding so much. You're, you're making such a, a busy room, but it's a friendly busyness. And, and even has chambers that you can go down into. And now we're into the memory palace, aren't we? But there you are. If only by multiplying associations, in other words, your memory can be improved. And also by filling the imagination, which is kind of a variation on multiplying associations. So that's, that's my response to the question of what with a couple notes about, I guess you could say why. Let me address briefly 
the question of how, or at least let me begin to address briefly the question of how, because I do see that I'm already running out of time. Here's my brief answer to how you cultivate memory or how you catechize. You make demands on the child and you show no pity. That's one part. The second part is you coach them and then you're making demands and showing no pity. You don't demand more than you can patiently coach. What I'm getting at here, and I'm being cheeky again about the showing no pity and all that in a way, but, but what I'm getting at here is that the human mind responds to demands when it comes to memory. And underlying it is the whole reality that the mind comes up with ways to do what it has to do. And when I was a child, I had to memorize a lot of stuff. I've talked about this in the past where my parents, my school, my church made me memorize a lot and gave me candy for doing it or gave me awards for doing it. So I felt compelled to do it. And I look back on my years in, in, in grade school, middle school, high school, and I, I look at some of the things I did to memorize. And what I was doing was coming up with what we would now call memory techniques. I don't know if I ever came up with a sophisticated memory palace, but I remember one time in college in particular, which, you know, that's older I get. But I remember walking around my, my college dorm room um, memorizing about, I don't know, 50, 60 psychology facts from some lectures that I'd had to listen to. And I put my hand in a given space, in a given posture for each category. And, and then when I, would, when I was taking the test, I would try to remember where in the room I was standing and where my hand was, and that helped me remember. Now, today I can't remember it very well, but for the test I could. And if I had if I had needed to memorize it for the long term, I would have come up with other ways to do so. And so what I'm getting at is if you just simply make demands on a, on a person's mind, they'll come up with tricks and techniques and devices to, to remember things. We just do. But now, as I say, that's kind of my cheeky, no holds barred answer. There are ways to coach. And that's the important part here. Do make demands, but keep those demands within the realm of what you're prepared to coach. So with that understanding, I want to give you three, oh, basic, uh, let's say four basic points about how to do this. And then I'm going to end and develop these four points more in the next session. Um, point one, or let's call it point A, is that it depends on what you're memorizing. It depends on the kind of thing that you're memorizing. Different things are memorized different ways. Point B, here are some general principles and practices. First, the law of association. Second, repetition in context. Third, focused attention. Fourth, what I call the FID factor, frequency, intensity, and duration. And five, group work. Now, I'm going to come back to all of this, but I just want to give you those now. Point C, Begin every learning session with a brief recitation. Make it high energy, make it challenging, speed it up, things like that. Make it varied in pace and focus entirely on calling their attention to the task. Well, really, I should say not to the task, but to the thing they're memorizing. Do everything you can to call their, their willful attention, not their distracted attention, but their willful attention to the thing they're memorizing. Point D, be sure to involve 
the whole child, body, rhythm, dance, etc., and involve the understanding. Be sure to use prayers, verses, texts, creeds, songs, etc., as ornaments of your home, as ornaments of your daytime, of the community setting, and play games. Now, I've given you those four very briefly. I'm going to end now. I wanted to make sure you had something at least to think about on the, the more practical side, on the how side. Um, well, I guess we talked about the what and we talked about the how much. So I got all the way to how. I'm going to end now because of time. But in the next session, I'm going to look at those four points that it depends on what you're memorizing. Here are some general principles and practices. Begin learning. Begin each learning session with a brief recitation and be sure to involve the whole child and the whole experience environment of the child. Use those four things for your how, and you'll be off to a very good start. In my next session, I'm going to talk more about those four. Let me conclude by saying that the mind is very much like light. Light, we can't make up our minds whether it's wave or particle. People argue about whether the mind is an organ or a muscle. Well, it acts like both, just like light acts like both a wave and a particle, but it also acts like more. What the mind is, is a seeker of truth. In fact, what the mind is, is a perceiver of truth. And as that kind of thing, it feeds on what Charlotte Mason called living ideas. It is the treasure chest for those living ideas. You might even say it's the pantry for those living ideas. Lacks the dignity of a treasure chest, but it's the pantry in which we store them. It's also true that it is the mind in which we plant the living ideas, in which they should be planted, and which some of them at least will grow, but only if they're planted. Some people go so far as to say that we are our memories. What I want to leave you with is this challenge. Make your child rich in lived experience and also make your child rich in living ideas to contemplate. Because it's those living ideas that make the experiences meaningful. And with that, let me offer you this prayer. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.